Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello everyone and welcome to History in Technicolor. Uh, this is me, David, and... This is me, Wolf. Right, that's both of us then. So this week, it's Wolf's bite at the cherry. So, uh, Wolf, how's your cherry? About to be bitten. <laughs> I'm, I'm not biting your cherry. <laughs> anyway, well, stop this now. Uh, let's do um, your film. What is it? So today I've selected to do Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. There are many, many... Films, aren't there, with glory in the title? How many on a, on a scale of one? Presumably you count. On a scale them. of one to ten, how many? <laughs> Just does it count? Lot. You know, we're into eleven, aren't we? Anyway, I got very confused about which path of glory this is going to be, but I did... Is there another one? Or are you thinking of glory? There's glory. And there's there something else about glory. Oh, Blades of Glory. Blades of Glory. Blades the, of Glory. That's a good movie, isn't it? The ice skating movie? Yeah, that is a great movie, isn't it? Where he eats yep. the... It's very different from this film. Quite different from this movie, yeah. Where he eats all the... Cigarette ends and all the rest of it on the toilet paper. In order uh, to get the key. Yes, yes. Very good. Anyway, I like that movie. Anyway, sorry, yes, Pause of Glory. Why did you choose this film? So I selected this film because it is a masterpiece. Okay, that's a good reason. Uh, also, we've never done a Kubrick movie. Right. Hmm, we haven't really done World War One yet, so it covers a little bit, something a bit different for us. Okay. And I think it was uh, it's more hard-hitting than the stuff that we've been looking at previously. Right. So a little bit of a change of pace. Okay. Very good. That's an excellent reason. So tell us about the film, Wolf. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to go through the spoilers. Okay. And uh, I hope since it came out in 1957, people will be okay with that. Are you going to go through spoilers? Yeah. We it, keep having this conversation. But the thing is, the end... Well, I Yeah, but I think it, when we analyse the film, what happens in the movie is okay. so important... All right. Fair We're going to have to. So it's based on a 1935 book by Humphrey Cobb, who was a soldier during World War One. Was he a crusty sort of bloke? I don't, don't know why I've asked that. I mean, no. Cobb is a crusty role, isn't it? Keep going. I was thinking of corn on the cob. Are we? Okay. Yeah. But as you now know, sometimes a corn on the cob is just a corn on the cob. No, that's a corn dog, David. <laughs> also, people have supported me. People have supported me. They really me. have. The corn dog is phallic. They posted it yesterday. Nobody posted that. Yes, they If you'd gone and deleted the post, I'll be, I screen capped it. I'll prove it. All right. So, this film was made in 1957 by the genius that is Stanley Kubrick. So, you're really bigging this up, aren't you, on the old genius, it's a masterpiece front? And this is both, obviously, just my opinion, but also generally the opinion of everyone. Okay. <laughs> Kubrick is is held in very high regard. Okay. 
Uh, and he, when he made this film, he was really young. It was quite early on in his right. career. So he makes Spartacus after this film. And right. that's when he, he really explodes. But it's because of his work with Kirk Douglas in this that he gets the job on Spartacus. So in general terms, why is Stanley thought as of such a genius? So Stanley is one of the most meticulous filmmakers that maybe has ever existed. Right. He's he's infamous for the amount of takes that he would do, the precision. Uh, his, all his shoots would go ludicrously over because of how much time he's spending making sure that every every prop, every everything that's framed in the image is perfect and precise, that the characters move exactly where he wants them to move. He's rewriting the dialogue on a regular basis. He's structuring everything to create... Um, one giant unified piece of work right. where every single shot is precise and perfect. Okay, and do we see this genius in so what, this movie? So yeah? in this film, I believe he spent multiple weeks, if not as much as a month, prepping the <clears throat> battle sequence where they go over the top. Right. And he's he's actively involved in making sure that every part of that scenery, which is you know fully constructed and built, yeah. is accurate and it flows the way that he wants it to so the action can go the way that he wants and then he can move the camera where he wants to mm. an example is he made the trenches wider than they were they i think they're usually four foot oh, wide, yes, but he makes that. them six feet wide right. so that he can get the camera in so that he can do the specific camera tracking shots that he wants to through right. the trenches there's just a large amount of detail going on all the time right. and that's really down to him okay and the way that he structures everything and writes it and prepares it and he, he's infamous throughout his career. 2001, Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strangelove, right. Barry Lyndon. The fact that on Barry Lyndon, he developed new technology so that he could film using only natural light right. without any studio uh-huh. lights. He could film with just candles right. and other stuff, but they had to create new technology in order to capture the image because the candles were too dark. Okay. Excellent. Very good. Sorry, anyway, I'm distracting you. Yeah. Basically, he's very well respected, and this is really early on in his career. And is a really crucial movie in kind of seeing how he progresses. Also, it stars Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax. Yep. Kirk Douglas is phenomenal. The okay. film is set in 1916 in France during World War One, as the narration at the beginning handily tells us. Colonel Dax and his men are ordered to carry out a ludicrous mission to capture a position called the Ant Hill at an estimated cost of at least 55% of the regiment, as it's broken down to us. It falls apart immediately in the most predictable and shocking way, uh, depicting all the horrors of trench warfare that we can imagine. Uh, the general then, in fury, orders that his artillery bombard their own men to get them to rush out of the trenches and continue the assault because they're being cowards in his eyes. The artillery officer declines, and after the mission has failed, the general decides that he's going to court-martial uh, decent proportion of the men and execute them to send a message to the others that if they won't run out and fight the Germans, they're going to face French bullets instead. Mm. Colonel Dax, which is Kurt Dulles, uh-huh. is a defence attorney, a famous French defence attorney. So when these men are eventually taken to trial, and they manage to get it down to one man per company, yeah. so it's three in total, he agrees that he's going to defend them in the court case. The court case is a sham. Mm-hmm. Eerily reminded me of Blackadder. Right. <laughs> yes. I think there are parallels with Blackadder, which I think we should come to. Speckled Jim. <laughs> <laughs> we got the general idea across. Yes. So anyway, these three men are put on trial. They aren't given a fair case. No evidence is presented. And the sentence is passed upon them. Mm. And there's nothing they can do about it. And the colonel just has to watch. And the only thing that he can do is to try and find the evidence about this artillery strike yeah. to score a blow against the general having him removed from power. Mm. We'll go through some of the finer details as we, yeah. as we hit it. David, had you ever seen this film before? I had never seen this film before. But I thought I had heard of it, obviously, as I mentioned. And what did you think of it when you watched it? I thought it was great. I thought it was. It was very economical. You felt you were going through a process here and it was very, you know, very clipped. Lots of lots of showing, not telling. You know, the story emerged out of conversations. Um, 
and there were, you know there were lovely things like uh, Miro, the the bad general, uh, marching through the trenches, and he's talking to the men, and it's quite clear from the men's responses, but not not stupidly so, that these are demoralised group of men who are very tired and are not ready to go over the top and take another objective. Um, so he shows that. So do you want to do this? Too much detail possibly at this stage. But basically, I thought it was very good, very professional. You could see that it was well put together. Um, there is a but. Uh, but overall, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it and thought it looked ah. incredibly well made. I'm interested to see your butt. I mean, okay. hear your butt. Hear my butt. <laughs> ah. um, Tell me okay. later, because I'm going to throw a few things out there. But Okay, go for it. I'm very, very intrigued by that. For me, I love the film. This is only the second time I've watched it, right. but I only hold it in the highest regard ever since I first saw it. I think it's genuinely remarkable in every way. And I think that you can tell that from the minute it begins. It's I think it's very bold and very decisive in what it's doing. Decisive is a very good word. It's very, very professional and decisive. He knows exactly what it's doing and he takes you through quite a long story very effectively and economically and does what he says he's going to do on the team. And it's what's so impressive. He's only 27 when he makes it. Right. Um, Most people have achieved their great things by the age of 27. Yes. Um, <laughs> How old are you again? 29. <laughs> um, so it, it's remarkable. And when I saw the running time, first of all, we haven't done many films that are... Cl- almost an hour and a half in mm. length. Yes. We're, we're always over two hours. So it was a relief. But the film, so much happens in it. I couldn't yeah. believe it was yeah. only that short. It's, it, and that's there's still a lot of time with really long shots. The pacing, the tension, it's built perfectly. Yes, it is. It's never rushed. No. It's, it's just very well done. And it conveys a huge amount of themes and messages outright. Doesn't yes. yeah, it yeah, hits you with it. It's I brilliant. totally agree with all that. It's really good. Watch. I loved the fact that it's filmed in black and white. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent decision. Um, Why is that an excellent decision? Then? Well, I think from an artistic point of view, I think it's wonderful. I right. think it looks really good. I think it also heightens the 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 drama and the the images. I think it's also done probably as a cost saving because the film right. had a quite tight budget. So I think it's cheaper than using colour. Okay. So that's maybe why they did it. But I, I think it looks wonderful. The lighting and the framing. Right. I've no idea about that, I must admit. I would have said that you mentioned the showing the four horrors of the war going over the top and all the rest of it. Um, I felt that that's on a very different level to a more modern movie. In a more modern movie, if you were trying to show the horrors of war, you would be much more gory about it. There was yeah. always something quite slightly mechanical about it. You know, you could see, oh, he's showing me here how terrible this attack is. Um, I'm thinking it, I'm not really feeling it. Okay, so I do understand it's not that. Criticism do, do you think that's maybe just because what we're looking at is a film from the, the mid-50s? Possibly. And, and, and that you're comparing it to movies that have been made sort yes. of 60 years later Indeed. in terms of how they want to approach it. And with this film, there's probably a conscious awareness of All Quiet on the Western Front... Um, the Red Badge of Courage, I think, right. is another one that it, the book is loosely followed afterwards, and the film was a success as well. The, those kind of key moments in World War One mm. cinema. Yeah, I honestly think the yes, cinematography is perfect. I think the framing, the lighting, uh, the dialogue is so smart. The acting is brilliant. The the discussions between the two generals and often when they bring the colonel in mm. that kind of the power struggle between the three of them mm. it's very entertaining to yeah. watch while also being genuinely kind of intellectually stimulating yeah and i love the scene and this is where i think it's really well done i noticed how much the actors are moving or the camera is moving all the time right even when in just a scene with two people in a chateau talking and it's the scene where the colonel has gone to the dinner party mm-hmm. of the major general and the the conversation has ended essentially, and the general is making his like power move, yeah. and he's to, choosing to leave the room. Yeah. So you've got his physical actions involved with the dialogue as well. So he's taking control of the scene, and he's moving towards the door. The colonel has been holding back the information that he is going to sucker punch him with, mm-hmm. and he continues to walk with him, allowing him to take charge. And just when they get to the door, and he opens the door, he reveals the piece of information. And then, and I think it's the colonel opens the door, and then the general slams the door shut. Yeah. And then they and then they move back into the room again, walking yeah. again. Just it's always active. Yeah. The camera moving, the actors moving, 
the dialogue is whip smart. I honestly mm. think it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. The um, the conversations between the three of them and the senior general, how he manipulates the Miro, the um, his underling, and then how Colonel Dax has to sort of fall in, but how he protests that works really, really well. Yeah. The the court scene is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Really, really quick. Really sharp to the point that conveys all the messages you need to know about what's happening in the court scene while also giving you all the dramatic tension that you want yeah. as well. Yeah, I honestly think it's just wonderful. What did you think of uh, Kirk Douglas before you tell me about your thought Kirk was great. I was also delighted that you took his shirt off. Um, did you read what I read? I did. That it was a contractual obligation <laughs> in every movie has to have his shirt yes. off at least once. Extraordinary. People often ask me for that as well, but mm, I haven't managed to get into a contract yet. Maybe we'll draw that up. Maybe we'll draw that up. Yes, I, um, Kirk was great. He was very good and not at all showy in the way that, uh, you know, not didn't get the feeling this is a star who had to be, whose ego had to be fed. He did a great job. It's very economical and all the rest of it. Yeah, I thought so, yes. he was really charismatic, strong, honourable. It he doesn't it, He didn't feel like a classic American stuck in another movie, which you sometimes get when they bring over a star yeah. and put them into a, a slightly smaller film. He fits perfectly in. And he conveys the character brilliantly. He does. He's quite reserved on the whole. And when he when his anger bursts out or is bubbling on the surface, it doesn't feel over the top because we have the same feeling inside yeah. us as, as the viewer. So whenever he vents, it, it's a relief. Yes. It's, it's cathartic for us because we want someone to be yelling at them like, like we want to. In fact, I've, I've kind of felt that he didn't yell enough in a way. He seemed... Too restrained, you know. You would have thought in that situation, but I suppose in the army he had limited capability to do so. So, do you think, to some extent, uh, he's not portrayed as this perfect character, and they are aware that simply the fact that he's part of the institution means he's part of the problem as well? No, I think he's not played as a an ideal whiter than white character because at the beginning he's actually manoeuvred into making this attack by having his sense of ambition and professional skill called into question. So Miro uses exactly the same approach as did, I think it's Blafort with um, Miro himself, by saying, oh, but surely you're the greatest offensive colonel in the history, blah, blah, surely you can do this. Suggests that his career will be held back if he doesn't do this. And you see Dax fold under that, even though Dax knows that it's going to be a disaster. So Kirk's character definitely has a flaw. The same floor, actually, that his two senior officers have shown. It's also really interesting that his strengths, which are on display all the time, can never really get him out of the situation. Yes. Well, that's one of the thing, good things about the movie, is that it sells you a couple of dummies, doesn't it? You know, it drops a little shoulder, does a little shimmy, and takes you on the outside, because you think the court is going to be a success. Well, it's the greatest prosecuting lawyer, defence lawyer in, in La France. Perfect timing uh, as well. Sacre bleu. You know, of course, they are going to get off. Why am I <laughs> Why? <into> a French <laughs> Why are you still doing that? <laughs> don't know. I shall stop right now. Uh, and then, of course, you know, well, things happen. So the film does manage... And he's actually really good in court as well. Yeah. Just to yes. check that out there. I suppose that makes that it makes it doubly clear what a sham the court case is, that he does very well. But And how did you feel that his abilities are portrayed in the battle sequence? Yeah, very well. I mean, he's shown as very brave and he's always at the front and he's encouraging people. I mean, they have to show in the film that there was a genuine effort made, that the charge of cowardice is, even despite the charge of cowardice in a war situation probably being uh, ludicrous anyway, but that that charge isn't, does not hold water. And did you ever think that he was like one above the rest of them, that he was braver or stronger or more skilled than any of the others? Did, did he seem like that single individual, or was he a bit no. more like one of the men? He seems more like one of the men. What did you think about yeah. that? Yeah. No, I, I would agree. <clears throat> I just wanted to check. There was an interesting... There was a slightly strange subplot about the uh, sergeant, is it, who takes two men out to do the reconnoitering and, through his cowardice, gets one of them killed, and then is the guy who, at the end, is at the shooting scene. Um I wasn't quite clear about what that was doing within the dramatic whole. I think the I think the purpose of that is each of the three men is selected and each of them is selected for a different reason. Each of them as arguably unjust as the last. Hmm. So the one guy is picked by ballot. Then the other guy is picked, I think, because he is foreign. Hmm. 
So he, they accuse him of being, uh, what's the word they use? They say he's essentially undesirable. Mm-hmm. So they select him because they don't like him. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is this subplot that you've been talking about, where a good, honest soldier is betrayed by another member of the senior leadership yeah. who is a coward themselves, an actual coward, and is going to throw this person under the bus yeah. um, so that their legacy can't be tainted mm. and no one can reveal that, that they let their own men die. Yeah. So I think it's just to, to a, another layer of injustice yes. that, that's built into the system. Mm-hmm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How did you feel about the portrayal of the Major General and the Brigadier General? Did you think they were a fair portrayal? Or a very biased one. Right. So, should we come on to my objection to the movie? Yes. Yes. Yeah. This is the moment. Okay, go. Yeah. The big one. Da, da, da. Actually, I think I've raised the same objection before in a previous movie. So, I'm not aware of where this comes in the history of movies that protest about war rather than glorify it. So, it might be that it's right at the beginning and therefore, you know, my comment's probably less... Well, they're probably arguable anyway, but, you know, less. I, I would take that as a point. If it's right at the beginning, well, fair enough. But it's not very original, is it? I mean, it's the same old trope. There's a couple of tropes that are repeated time and time again in war movies. There is the one of lions led by donkeys that says, look, all these officers, they're all rubbish, aren't they? They're all stupid, arrogant, part of a social elite that's deep, deeply unequal. They don't care about their men. They despise them. And... You know, they're just horrible and all the men are good, solid, honest people who are just trying to do their best and are jolly brave and they're all horribly let down. So there's that dichotomy between good and bad, which I find tiresome. Okay. Because it's clearly not true. There are no doubt some very arrogant, nasty, and of course they're living in a system which was deeply unequal, where an officer class expected to be obeyed and expected to tell everybody else what to do. It's a different world. So there are no doubt some bad officers who did that. But equally, the vast majority, as we know from the real histories of the First World War, the officers were very much part of what took the same risks as their men. And there is no great dichotomy. The other thing is about the, obviously, we all agree with the senselessness of war and you know this mindless slaughter of... World War One, or what looks like mindless slaughter, and there is this really easy story about World War One that God, it's just incompetence. It's just these generals who don't care about their men. They chuck men into the line. Tens and tens of thousands are mown down, and of course, it is absolutely horrific. But a lot of that comes about not because of uncaring incompetence by the generals concerned, with some notable exceptions but because this is a kind of warfare that nobody had seen before, nobody had predicted before, that technology had led them into, and they simply did not know how to to cope with until eventually things like artillery and tanks and new tactics come along to allow them to break the logjam. And this is all part of a a much-repeated trope, which Blackadder, incredibly funny though it is, simply repeats and regurgitates, which is the same things, you know, senseless slaughter, little patches of land for tens of thousands of people, the, incom- the generals are all incompetent, uncaring idiots, and the, if only the brave men have been allowed to get on with it or do all the politics, we wouldn't be in the stupid situation anyway, sort of thing. And it is utter tribe. Do you think that the lions led by donkeys issue that you um, take umbrage with is particularly associated with World War One? Well, we saw it in the Crimean War as well, that same message, didn't we? You know, about these incredibly posh, entitled, privileged people who it's very easy to hate because, of course, you know, we don't believe in living like that. Um, So I don't think it's... I think it's... But whether it's a trope that has been 
brought forward. I'm, I'm not a. Do you, do you think so? In 1957, what the Second World War has been over. By the time they start making the film, I don't know, ten years. Do you think that's quite recent after such a unifying experience, one that we also interpreted relatively positively? Okay, here afterwards. was my get out of. Okay, yeah. Jail free card that I yeah. laid down on the table beforehand. It could be that Stanway is doing this for the first time or very early. You know, this is a radical new departure from the normal course of movers, which, of course, is even worse, which is to glorify war and saying that's oh, all a bit of fun, you know, blood and glory and all the rest of it. So if that's the case, then fine. You know, I um, take my hat off to Stanley for being uh, one of the first ones to do it. But sitting here in 2019, you know, you like there, are, there is a more then. complex and more impressive story to be told about the horror of World War I that doesn't involve just saying, it's all these guys, folks, they're bleeding idiots. I'll be because, interested to see what you think when we go through some of the historical right. accuracy. So I don't, I don't, wouldn't argue with some bit that, some terrible things happened and there were some incompetent people and all the rest of it. But by simplifying in the way that we tend to about World War I, the way that Blackadder does as much as this movie, is it seems to me we betray the people who at the time gave their lives for something they believed in. And the vast, vast majority did so for that reason, whatever station of life they came from, and because they believed in it. I mean, it's a slightly esoteric objection to it, but nonetheless, there we go. I do think from some of my readings that this is one of the first films about World War One that splits equal time between the generals and the troops. Right. And it's back and forth moving between the chateau and the trenches. Yeah. Is quite significant and yes. important in this film. It, obviously, the book is written in 1935. Yeah. Oh, is that right? So, so the, the yeah, the writer was in World mm. War One, right? Became and fought in a number of battles. Yeah, um, was obviously traumatized by it. Yeah, and became very bitter over what had happened. Yeah, and then when the story comes out, writes the book when they realize what was happening. Yeah, and then the, obviously the film gets picked up after World War Two, mm. and then we have this film. Yeah, so I wonder if. Maybe it's an earlier example, like you say. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's got to be a... a so with that, I mean, that's a, that's a but. Everything else I've said still holds. You know, this is an amazingly well-made well movie. And so many movies had been simply about a sort of a, a paper-thin type of warfare that's, oh, this is all great and everybody's a hero and all the rest of it, which is far worse than this kind of thing, in a sense, you know. So... And if it's earlier in the process, as it probably is in 1957, then that's great. It's a story that has to be told. And maybe it's just that we keep repeating the thing. I suppose what, I'm, what would be even better would be the complexity of war. But I suppose that's difficult to do. And you can see from the beginning of this, he's out to do a job to sell one message. And the simpler um, you keep it, the more effective it is. Um, what so. is that message, David? Just to clarify for everyone. That message for me is that... Uh, war is, is is hell anyway, and in this war, incompetent, self-interested and self-ambitious generals sold the lives of their men without care or thought. And do you think that the film's viewpoint is specifically anti-war, or is it more focused on being anti-class system? Yeah, it's both. Anti-elite. It? It's anti-war and anti-elite, yeah. Because I think you you could interpret this that... Specifically, the problem in this scenario is that the class divide and the elitism that's going on in the army is what's at fault rather than the necessarily the war itself. Yes, it's certainly that's... I, I think you're absolutely right. That comes first and foremost. And, and I think that maybe the, the focus directing the anger towards the elite is a slightly refreshing take on... World War One, rather right. than being like, oh, everyone who's running it is stupid and the war's terrible. I think kind of accept that we're in it, mm. but we're like, the problem, and, it, and then it reflects more on general society, right. is that the elite classes are the ones that are yeah, get the hammer. causing the problems. So that might well us. have been refreshing in 1957. I could well believe that it is. It isn't refreshing now, of course, because yes. we've been through 40 years of it. 
Um, but yes, I take your point, absolutely. Do you think that it's easier for us to watch this film or, in, or that the film was made because it's about France rather than about Britain and America? We had the same experience with another film that escapes me, that it's easier, oh, the Battle of Algiers thing, that it's much easier, you take the patriotism out of it, and therefore it's much easier to look at it more dispassionately. What did you find? Yeah, I, I think that the only way especially from reading as well about some of the production issues and how they wanted to try and give it a happy ending. I don't think they would... There's no way in 1957, I think, that we could have made a film like this about mm. the British Army right, or the Americans, especially that close after World War II, mm. and have been that damning. Yeah. Because it's damning from start to finish. Mm. Yes, there's no let-up, is there? But, I noticed, actually, that it was banned in France. Yes. Did I read? Yep. Banned in France of the 70s or later? I was going to ask, though, do you think that because the fact that it, it uses a variety of actors from around the world, American leads and stuff, that it's actually subtly commenting on all forces or the Allies in general? I assume that this was not about France particularly. This was about uh, every so maybe, nation. So maybe by continually by um, setting it in France and having those of the people, it's easier for to give it to Western audiences while still making your original point yeah. be about everyone in general. Yeah, maybe. And how do you feel about the ending? I thought it was very good. You know, I thought, um, as I say, he sells you a bit of a dummy, doesn't he? And you think something else is going to happen, and uh, yet it doesn't. So I, I think the ending's very good. But it falls... Did you find the film powerful? I found it very emotive. powerful and very clear. I didn't find it... I've watched many more films of which I've got emotionally engaged. I found it along the same lines, in a way, as Battle of Algiers, in the sense that here is a movie to do a job, and it's done incredibly well, it's very good to watch, it does just enough to build the characters, but all the time you're aware that this character's being built in this way for this reason. Okay. So, you know, you know the guy with the priest is being that way because you want him to tug at your heartstrings. I don't really know enough about him. Um, so... I didn't find it as emotional as many other films I've watched. Did you feel the outrage? Yes. Yes. And then how did you feel about the very <clears throat> final scene? Because the book ends with the execution. Mm. How did you feel about the final scene in the bar? It's a very... It's a, it's a weird one, isn't it? I'm, um, I took that to mean that the bestiality of everybody, or the, how war makes brutes of, it all, of us all... And that in that, in the end, nobody was different. And yet that we are still people nonetheless. And that actually this victimised woman who behaves in a very innocent, very, in a very innocent way and she sings this very wholesome song and everybody's, everybody's pulled back to what life should be like by her example, as it were. Was that, was that over Yeah, no, it, it's a fascinating scene. What... Because I couldn't remember it, and I don't know why I couldn't remember that scene. I was really worried at first, and obviously I was taking from it, oh great, we spent this whole movie feeling sorry for all the men and the troops, and we think the elite is, is the worst that they could be. And then we get here, and they're all going to be animals towards this mm. German woman that they've captured. But then obviously she starts to sing, and they, the humanity connects them all, mm. and they can't help but sing along with mm. her. And the, the film opens with a French song and then ends with a German song. Mm, interesting. Yes, it's an interesting wrinkle, and isn't it? It is interesting that <clears throat> she is their enemy, but they can unite with her. Mm. And I wonder if it just reinforces yes. that idea that they can't unite with the elite at all. That just that, that gap is too too broad for them to, mm. to cover because of the class divide. But they yeah. can unite with other people on the same level, even if they're on, in the opposing army. Yeah. And... For some people, that's actually almost too positive, uh, almost saccharine ending right. in some ways to this profoundly like anti-war yes. movie. But I thought it, I thought it was very affecting, and it surprised me. It was a that was a real curveball. Yes, putting that right in at the end. Yes, I must admit it was. It was. It is pretty saccharine. Um, but again, you can see the message. Here's the message I'm going to give you. Mm, really good scene, and it worked really well. But it is very obvious why he puts it in, isn't he? This is why I think the film's really good, or Kubrick in particular is so good. In this really tight film, he gives you this yes. one scene and then can say so much yes. in a couple of minutes. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely right. And then and all that's happening is Kirk Douglas isn't doing anything. He's just watching no. through a window. Yeah. 
and you cut to him and, and you can see his reaction once or twice yeah. and that's all you need to know and and that scene has impacted upon him a lot as a yeah. character you can tell he's had a journey through that moment but we're not going to talk about it yeah. just going to move on yeah indeed uh, did you have any last thoughts on the film no I don't think so actually I think I've uh, said what in terms of how the film impacted me in terms of its accuracy would be uh, interesting to segue into that or, uh, yeah we will yeah the only thing I wanted to say, which I think sums up this film on the whole, Kurt gets that one moment at the end where he kind of breaks down, he unleashes all of his anger, and he's screaming all of his personal values and his beliefs. And you that's the exact moment, or the one where he's in the court and he does his closing statement, both of those work, mm. where you think, this is great. This is when something changes. In every movie I've ever watched, right. this is when the good thing happens. Yes. And the good thing, thing never happens. Happen. I think that's exactly it. That I was saying that about him selling you dummies. He just, it's much bleaker than that. And I think it's a, a very rewarding film mm. for, for committing to that and, and, and going all yeah, the way and giving that to did. you. So, how did you feel, David, regarding historical accuracy about the, the setting, about the battlefields, about the trenches, about the costumes, the scenery? What did you think? I thought it worked really well. I thought it was great. So the trenches were, I mean, they looked relatively clean, So, which was in a way a good thing because, you know, you're always sold this story about people living in unbearable mud and there, absolutely there were situations like that. But generally speaking, that's the only image we ever have. And here you have, you know, professionally dug and built trenches, which look entirely practical and I think look look pretty accurate. The art uniforms all looked accurate. The way they fought the battles. The thing about men going into no man la- no man's land and checking things out was really interesting. I thought they did it really well. You never see the enemy actually. No, interesting. Germans are yeah. faceless throughout until you don't even see silhouettes it. like no? you sometimes get. No, um, <clears throat> just to. Uh, kind of put it in there. I believe that Kubrick spent a lot of time studying photography from World War One, and then he created the trenches meticulously from the photos, mm. so they would look exactly as they did at the time. Yeah. And uh, and obviously they built that huge network of trenches so they could move the camera through it, and the battlefield so they could move over the top of it during that mm. those long sequences. So it's a really big build that yeah. they kind of meticulously like planned and mm. structured. I think it's brilliant. So. The a lot of the characters are kind of fictional characters or composite characters, and the story itself is semi-fictional, but is based on real events. Yeah. And obviously, the writer of the of the novel was a soldier in the First World War in France. So the uh, General Bruland is real, but General Miro and Colonel Dax are fictional, mm-hmm. and the events take place slightly different years. So on the seventh of March, nineteen fifteen. French General Gerard Rivillac? I'm gonna say that. Ah. I don't know. Well, maybe that maybe that's better. He ordered artillery fire on his own soldiers when they refused to advance at is it Suen? Is that how yes. you pronounce it? The artillerymen obviously refused, and then there were repercussions. And the reason this happened is that the artillery had been falling too short in the battle. It hadn't damaged the German guns, so the German position was completely fortified, and the French troops couldn't leave the trench because they were under complete mm. attack. Yeah. They were locked down, so they didn't go out, and he wanted them to fire on their own men to get them to come out of the trenches. After this terrible uh, assault, which went awfully, 24 men were put on trial, and four corporals were convicted and killed by firing squad. The rest were given a stay of execution. One of them did have an exemplary war record, and he kind of matches up with one of the three that we see in the film. I think right. it's uh, Pierre Arnard uh, is the is the character. He's the one who gets picked by ballot. Right. I think in real life, his his equivalent. Hmm. They did two ballots. They did one ballot, and a different man was picked. Then they realized there was a fault in the ballot. Right. The numbers had been messed with, so they had to redo it again, and mm. he got picked the second Good time round. So very that was unlucky, wasn't it? Yep. Um, I'm going to say his name wrong again. Uh, Revayak's uh, mm-hmm. actions were revealed in 1921. Right. So this is where it differs from the film. In the film, he does face some retribution and seems to be ousted at the end and is going to be punished for what's happened. 
whereas in real life, he was never, ever punished. Mm. He was given three months leave later in the war because he had continually proven that he had no regard for his own men. Right. And he would... They'd do an assault and it would fail, and then he was, and he would try and force all his men to do the same assault again immediately. Right. And he said, we haven't lost enough men today. We need to lose more. Right. Our quota is much higher. And he would have these quotes about how many men should die a day in order to try and further the war effort. Right. And basically they said he would pass his like mental capacity and he needed to take a break. Right. But later on, he was made Grand Officer of the Legion d'Honneur. I've butchered the French language yet again. Um, And French authorities never charged him. Right. And they wouldn't investigate him, despite learning of these claims that he had tried to um, shell his own men. Right. Which is obviously uh, not cool. Yeah. Um, And the families of the men who were executed fought for a number of years to clear their name and, I think, to try and push this story forward. And eventually, in 1934, they were all exonerated and they were cleared of all charges. And it's when that story broke in 1934 Mm. that Humphrey Cobb heard about that and wrote the book in 1935, which the film then comes from. So why did the French ban it? Because it shows the French in such a bad light. But if it's true... It's obviously semi-fictional, so maybe they felt like it was too much. But um, Battle of Algiers was banned, and Mm. that was true. Yeah. Obviously, they say that that's not true. They probably say that this isn't true. But what are the reasons that they give, I wonder? I think I think it, they. I always just read that it showed France mm. in, in too negative... Uh, It'd be lovely to know, wouldn't it? I heard that after de Gaulle died, it's when it comes back. Right. And so maybe de Gaulle wouldn't allow it specifically yeah. because of his um, belief in France and the image that yeah, he needed to cultivate. Yeah, maybe the experience of the Second World War, yeah. Anyway, so the, the basic point is that this is what happened, although they've made some changes for dramatic um, effect, as it were. Yeah, and, and the characters are kind of going to be fictional characters. And you can tell that in the film they're, they're kind of created for specific reasons. Like you say, you've got that subplot. Yeah. They're all plausible, uh, but they further the belief of the director right. and the writer. So there's a deal of it which isn't necessarily true or unknown. So the reconnoitering episode isn't necessarily true. The... The bit where he sells Yeah, I couldn't his mate find anything about that. Okay. I'm... So the core story is accurate that these people were convicted and a general ordered his artillery to shell his own men, but I don't think he's there's... added things around it. I don't think there's any first rate defence lawyer who's also a really good colonel yes. who's defending his men <laughs> and right. then manages to take he doesn't take down the the villain of the piece and then get offered his job like right. no, none of that happens. Right. But so what we've got is a core truth um, around which Stanley has uh, built his story. His yeah, drama. and I, th- I think the attack on the Ant Hill is loosely based on certain parts that they've right. they've done. You can but, imagine there are probably many yeah. occasions. Where... In the book, it's called the Pimple. Right. There's, which is the place that they have right. to try and take. Okay. But again, I think that's a, that's a fictional... It's not very glorious, is it? No. You know, the Pimple that is on the buttock of the... It's uh, interesting. German Why army. do you think it's called the Ant Hill? Because if it's created, it's for kind the story, of um, dehumanizing a name, isn't it? And do you think it also is there to remind you that because they talk about it in the introduction, they're fighting for months just to claim a couple of feet's worth of land. Yes, the ant hill is such a minuscule like, yes. location, which is another trope that is continually repeated. So the fact that it's all true, of course, the fact that that core bit is true, rather undermines my arguments of earlier, doesn't it? I think. But you could because nonetheless, because without doubt, horrific things and failures of leadership happened in those times, and that's more than a failure of leadership. I mean, that's criminal. Um, I, I think my point is that there is much more complexity about World War One than we are usually fed by drama. And I think what you you could argue that this is an extreme example involving a couple of individuals, and that in the in the whole scheme of World War One, it's not although, the generalisation. Yes, although. One would, in itself, an injustice of this size is well worth a movie. So you know, yeah. it's not it's not a criticism. And it is. And in fairness, the film is a very short, tight film about that story. Yes, indeed. It's. I, I think it's wonderful. Uh, how was the film received? Well, it came out in the same year as The Bridge on the River Kwai, and has thus pretty much vanished. Uh, it didn't make any money at the box office. I think it was actually a box office failure. But because he worked with Kirk Douglas, and they had Kirk Douglas. 
thinks it's one of the best films he's ever right. made. He honestly loves the work that he did in the film, and he helped. He helped. He helped. Uh, he he helped <laughs> get it made. So then he gets Kubrick to do Spartacus, and, and that's when they make loads of money and have all that success. Right. And obviously, as you say, it was banned. Uh, I think it just um, couldn't get the recognition that it would get at that time, probably because it's too anti-war. Mm. And yeah, you know, when you've got another, when you've got Bridge on the River Quiet there. Yeah. Which was just a box office sensation. We must do that. One, it just we? it just eats up everything. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add in conclusion? I don't think so. I had a thoroughly good hour and a half. Um, I felt duly outraged. Um, and I, at the same time, admiring what seemed like an incredibly well-made film. Before we give it a score, would you recommend it? Yes, absolutely recommend it, yeah. Yeah, unashamedly. Unashamedly, yeah, no problem. Go watch this. Yeah. It's a, it's actually free on Amazon Prime. Indeed. In Well, at least in the UK. It just mean it's free, of course. It means that you've just paid yes. for it. Can I just point but, at it? But if you have Amazon Prime, you don't have to. You don't have to rent it. You can no. just watch it. Of course, if you have Amazon Prime, you're maintaining one of the largest companies in the world, obviously. So. Which which you are, David? Yes. So and I, and I beat myself twice a day. Anyway, <clears throat> don't tell me yeah. how you beat yourself, David. Uh, what would you give your film score? Right, film score. I'm going to give it a seven. Which you are finding very disappointing, aren't you? You're finding it. I can see. Yeah. I, the pulled look in your eyes. So I would give it a nine. Okay. And I I would really probably push it to a nine point five if we were okay. doing points. Right. Can I get you to go higher? Um again. Is it we... only your is it only your personal dislike of the Lions Led by Donkey story that holds it down? Um uh, it's the it's actually the the fact that it really engaged my brain, not my heart. Because okay. it was so mechanic so mechanical, so clearly professionally done in order to create and tell this appalling story it never got me to identify personally with the people with my head I could say this is an appalling injustice and good to make the film and it's brilliantly done I didn't I don't think we can agree uh, I think we'll have to I think we, this is one where we're going to have to keep our two keep scores because I, mean, I, I don't I don't want to go down to an eight and I don't know yeah, if okay. I want to try and force you up to an eight right okay we're going to have to accuracy wise Accuracy-wise, I'm in your hands, I think. I mean, it looked to me extremely accurate. I'd done, I had the same information you did about the Sawan uh, Corporal's affair. So, But he's done a lot of drama around Yeah, it. I was thinking maybe a six. Okay. Do you think that's too low? Six is fine. Because I feel bit... like we have to admit it's, fi- it's a yes, fictional story. there's a lot of fiction to... around it. It's, it's, I mean, it's six seems fair, yeah. to be honest. Okay. Okay, so six and a, a seven stroke nine point five. <laughs> yes, perfect. If, right. if you've seen the film, tell us what you think. Okay. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Yes, and we can have a, a vote on whether it should be seven or it should be nine point five. Everybody can tell us. Well, I think it's time for a roundup now. Okay. okay. Wolf and David's roundup. They're the rootness, tootness cowboys in the wild, wild west. Wolf and David's Roundup. Well, I'll tell you, there is an element of curmudgeon also about the knight's tale, and a rather stronger one than Bill and Ted, I have to say, a 19% curmudgeon rating on this one. But 61% of you love it, so that's good. Astonishingly, not one of you, not one, rated it as one of your top 10 history movies, which I suppose doesn't come as a massive shock. Or indeed, as a little shock. We had a debate on Flick Chat as well as Facebook this time around. Such is progress. John nailed it early for me though with a wonderfully fun movie that turns the genre on its head. This could have been just another run-of-the-mill Knights, Damsels, Good Guy, Bad Guy flick, but by not taking itself too seriously, the director and actors turn the film into an enjoyable experience. Absolutely right. And I say again, absolutely right. And Jessica, Cheryl, Wayne, Heidi, Barbara, all agreed. Lucy the Dancer has introduced it to a new generation and so the transition to cult status is surely always assured now. Stuart had not seen it, can you believe that? And saw it now on Netflix and thankfully loved it. The word hoot was used and also agreed that Heath should have looked closer to home for his romances. Music was also a bit of a theme. People loved it. Alex and Penny both voted for that. Devon, a bit harsh on historical content, but nonetheless enjoyed the hoot coefficient. 
Tim, however not normally a loathing man, and yet a knight's tale was an exception to his rule of life, Julie thought the same, though this came from memories of a long while ago and I suspect it might have been less Heath's fault and more due to other external circumstances. Gary leavened the bread of disapproval with a compliment about the podcast, so Gary, all is forgiven. The, the wait. It led on to a conversation about doing Carry On Cleo or Carry On Up the Khyber. Infamy, Gary. Infamy. They've all got it in for me. But no, I could not. I shudder at the very thought of doing a carry-on movie. Bah. Jack had a great idea of a Paul Bettany Chaucer spin-off, and I, for one, would sign up on that. While Lewis's theory, Lewis's theory was that the question of historical accuracy was entirely bogus because A Knight's Tale actually took place in a post-apocalyptic parallel universe, an entirely triumphant explanation which resolves any conflict. And anyway, ACDC have been a post-apocalyptic ever since they started. Dave on Flick Chat made me laugh with a superbly erudite comparison between the film and a Shakespearean storytelling technique, then rolling on and on until he convinced himself he'd just been talking twaddle all along. All I needed to do was stand back and watch. Comments of the thread, though, probably went on balance to Stacey, whose enthusiasm for the movie was enhanced also by an appreciation of the part that medieval literature played in the movie, and concluding with, The whole film captures how colourful and exciting the time was. Not all brown like most films portray it. I had a chat on Flick Chat with Sonea along the same lines. It's great to see the colour of the Middle Ages brought to the fore. And you're quite right, I think that's why I love it too. Having said all that, Stacey did then give me a ticking off for dissing Chaucer, not the first person, I have to say, to do that to me, and I got in trouble with Tom for dissing Thin Lizzy. I then listened to the boys are back in town, realised it was great and apologised. Then after 10 minutes of listening to other Thin Lizzy numbers, realised that nope, I've been right all along, they have one good track. Sorry about that, the truth hurts. So look, I was pretty pleased, I have to say. I was a bit nervous about being called frivolous and getting hammering, all in all, I think we all now recognise a knight's tale for the glittering triumph that it really is. Very good. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Wolf. And next time we will be back for my movie, which is Immortal Beloved. Anyway, let's go. Okay. Thank Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Are you not entertained? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.